0: Thank you to Kathy's team for leading us this morning. It is a wintertime sensation, not available in most stores. It solves a problem everyone has. And according to the advertiser, it is fun. A wintertime sensation, not available in most stores, solves a problem we all have, and it's supposed to be fun. Do you know what I'm speaking of? You talk to somebody from First Service if you answered that question. In these economic times when almost every business is taking a downturn, there is one little shining star. Look at this. There is no sound, but because those of us who lay on couches have problematic blankets and we have to uncover to answer the phone, there is the snuggie, the blanket with sleeves. Keeps you warm. You can answer the phone, you can change channels, you can even have your book to read or a laptop because if you didn't have the Snuggie, you couldn't do that. You can enjoy a snack. It comes in three or four very soft colors. Oversized sleeves are perfect for crafts, for snuggling with your child and doing homework. Why do they even have his and her Snuggies? This is valued at $75, but for you, this special price today with a book light will throw it in for only $14.95 and call it even. Now when this ad gets to this part, I don't know if in your house it happens like in my house, but when the Snuggie goes outside, (laughs) can you see us all at Mesa Grande Games in our Snuggie? We would scare away the other Christian teams. This Snuggie has taken quite a hit with the parodies online that's called the Cult of the Snuggies, they, that they look like monks from a monastery. Or if you added a pointy hat, it could look like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings. Someone has said it looks like a shepherd without his sheep. And many people have said, can't you just wear your bathrobe backwards and be okay? Here's what amazing. what's amazing. While people are experiencing the problem the product can solve, they are persuaded. It's brilliant marketing, actually, because this product has been around for 20 or 25 years. Only previous to this, it was called the the slanket. Poor people need some help with their creativity. The slanket, the cuddle wrap, or the toasty wrap. But it's only this fall, fourth quarter sales. Could you believe they sold 4 million Snuggies? They are on back order. You can't get them for months now. Okay, who among us? Who bought one? You're going to admit it. Good girl. For years? Oh, okay. Anybody else bought one of these things this this fall for a Christmas gift? You will admit it. Uh, See, she won't tell on herself, but you're going to tell on him. Uh Uh-huh. This is what happened in first service. Nobody would admit that they have been suckered by the Snuggies commercial. It's brilliant. Enough evidence to move people to make a purchase. Consider your life of faith this morning now for the next few minutes, would you? What is enough evidence to move you? What is enough evidence to move you to a deeper place of conviction? How much evidence do you need? Today we're speaking about evidence that we can see clearly, evidence we can taste and touch and see and tangibly witness where God is being God in our world. There's no other explanation for what we're seeing and experiencing and hearing and, and moving through other than God showed up and did a godly thing. Now if I asked you, many of you, in fact most all of us could stand today and tell of a time when in your life or my life we saw God show up and be God. We could see it or taste it or touch it or at least we could say there is no other explanation than God did this thing. That kind of evidence its what we're talking about today. Sometimes it happens this way, very tangible evidence. Last week Pastor Saul talked about Uh, How sometimes our faith is built, we are persuaded because of tradition we inherit. With the example of Jesus and the disciples celebrating Passover together, they celebrate not because it's a new idea Jesus had, but because for generations this ritual had been passed down through the Israelites and had meaning. It taught them something. It pointed them towards God. So it is that many of us build our faith on inherited faith faith passed down, tradition. If you heard last week, if you listened carefully, you not only heard a young, honest young adult confess how the younger generations sometimes respond to tradition, but you also heard that even inherited faith has to be critically examined. This week we're talking about the kind of faith that grows strong because we've seen something with our eyes. To borrow Philip Yancey's line, he says, There are rumors of another world, but sometimes the supernatural shows up in everyday life, and it persuades us. Jesus sat on a hillside with his disciples, John chapter 6. It's late in the day when the crowd is moving towards Jesus. The Bible says, a large crowd... If I am on the hillside and a large crowd would move towards me, my instinct is to go to a quieter spot, pack up and go home. The Bible says, John chapter 6, I invite you to to, uh, reach for a Bible there. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus addressed the crisis head on, and this is unique. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same story is also told, but it's a little different there. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the disciples who come to Jesus and say, there's a big crowd coming, Jesus. You better send them away. Send them to the outlying villages because we're in a lonely place here and there won't be enough for people to eat, so Jesus, go send them away. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus stands up and takes control of the story by identifying what the need is. These people are hungry. Jesus says they need bread. They're all in the same situation. Where shall we buy bread for them? Is the first line out of Jesus' mouth, we. Where shall we buy bread? We, if the disciples are listening, someone must have heard. Jesus just implicated them in this crisis. Where shall we buy bread for these people? Verse 6. He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what was going he was going to do. Philip answered, "Well, 8 months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite." Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, "Here's a boy. He has 5 small barley loaves and 2 small fish, but how far will that go among so many?" And Philip does what any good cook or logistical planner would do. He reaches for a calculator and he begins to run the numbers, do the equations. How much is it going to cost us to take care of this product, this problem? How much product do we need? Philip does what many people would do. And and if you own a business or you work for a corporation or those of us who work in the church, we all know what the answer is going to be. Our budget's not big enough. We cannot feed these people. There are not enough resources. Then there's Andrew. Andrew has another way to solve the problem. Instead of asking what would it take, he just looks around, well, what do we have? And what he comes across is a little boy. The Bible says a little boy has five small loaves, barley loaves, and two small fishes, and we ought to read that text carefully. A lunch from a little boy. Poor boy. They're barley loaves. That's poor man's flour during Jesus' time. The text says they're small barley loaves. This is not Costco-sized bread we're talking about. These are five small leftover remnant flour kind of bread loaves and two small fish. It doesn't look like a rescue package of any kind. Verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled 12 baskets with pieces of Barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Well, surely this is the prophet who's coming to the world. Jesus himself distributes the food in John's story, which is another interesting detail different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The people eat as much as they want. Hungry people are satisfied. Twelve baskets of leftover no one is complaining when the sun goes down. Something happened on that hillside that day. There are at least two groups of people in this story and at least two possible responses to what happened that day on the hillside, at least. And this is what, how, how I would like to direct our attention this morning People who witness the same evidence and have different responses. Because people see things differently. And in this story, at least, there are insiders, Jesus and the disciples, and there are outsiders, the people on the hillside who were hungry. Depends upon where you're sitting, what perspective you have, how you view the evidence. If you are as big of a news junkie as I am, this past Thursday, you know, the great state of Illinois fired their governor. Right? By a unanimous vote in the state Senate, Governor Rob Blagojevich is accused of attempting to sell the U.S. Senate seat that was left vacant by Barack Obama. He hasn't shown up to his impeachment hearings the last week or two. He finally showed up this week on Thursday and decided he might say something. I was interested to see what he would say. Among other things, he said to the Senate, how can you impeach a governor when you have insufficient and incomplete evidence? There's not even one credible piece of evidence, he said. And then he sat down, and the rest of the story was told when 59 U.S. senators voted him out. Not one credible piece of evidence, he said. The governor is gone, and there will be a criminal trial, and I suppose then the evidence will be known. But there are two very different responses, everyone looking at the same evidence that day, In fact, the new governor who's been seated, the lieutenant governor, now the state of the governor for the state, was quoted yesterday. When he asked how he was responding to this incident, he said, All I can say is one day you're a peacock and the next day you're a feather duster. (laughs) It is not clear if he's speaking about himself moving into the governor slot (laughs) or his predecessor. There are different responses to the evidence. Everyone's looking at the same evidence. So it is with the 5,000 on the hillside. It is a ridiculous story, by the way. A poor boy with five small loaves, two small fishes, and somehow, not only does everyone eat, they eat until they're satisfied. There are 12 baskets of leftovers. You can see content people. You can see baskets full of leftovers overflowing. You can see the crowd is quiet and calm. And in fact, even at the end of the story, some of them shout out and say, well, surely a prophet has come into this world. That's the evidence in John chapter 6. What is the response? Physical evidence. Pastor Ken and I have had some questions from those of you who are reading the book, Choosing Your Faith. It's a book suggested for our small group study this first part of the year. And some people have been less than enthusiastic about Middleburg's book, his point is that there are a variety of ways people come about faith and make choices for faith, and it would be good for us to know that, to know that when people choose faith, there, it happens because of certain things. And, and he says it would also be wise for all of us on the inside of faith, whatever our faith perspective, to have a critically examined faith that's much healthier than a blind faith. One of the reasons this book was suggested twofold. The first is that we would all take seriously, critically examining our own faith. However, we've come to believe what we believe and do what we do, it's the pastoral staff's hope that in 2009, we will speak to people about our faith, people outside of these walls. And when we do, we'll be able to explain why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe because we have examined our faith. But the second purpose is to understand more clearly how people outside of at least our faith tradition, how their perspective is different, what it means to try and speak with people who don't share your views. That is our second purpose. We are living in a time when it's no longer enough to say, well, this is right because I said it was right, or this is right because the Bible said it was right, or this is right because I can prove it to you. That's the church I grew up in. And it was enough, and it settled it. And we were all baptized. We're living in a different world today. Middleburg tells a story in the book about sitting in a mosque. He's toured a mosque and sat down inside to hear a lecture from an imam. The imam begins to describe the tenets of the Muslim faith, worship, the way they live out their lives, their prayer life. Begins to talk about the Muhammad and Allah. And then he says about Jesus, you know, Jesus is not divine, as the Christians claim. Jesus is a prophet like Muhammad, a prophet to be honored, but not never to be worshipped. And he finishes his lecture and takes some questions. And Middleberg is among those who asks a question. He asked of the imam, well, I, I'd just like to know, what do you do with all of the evidence? What do you do with the thousands of pieces of documents that testify to this man, Jesus? The miracles he performed, the witness and the crowd around him, the lives that were changed, the people who saw the cross, who saw the empty tomb. What do you do with all of that evidence, especially when compared to your prophet sitting in a cave 600 years later? claiming Jesus can't be divine. What do you do with that evidence? And the imam said, I choose to believe this story. I think it irritated Middleburg the way he talks about it in the book, if I've read correctly. But isn't that what we all sometimes do? This is the evidence, and no matter the evidence, I choose to believe this. And I actually respect that answer from the imam because it is an honest answer. Well, this is the choice that I've made, he says. When we think about the evidence in the world, these seen the seen evidence, that which we see and touch and know and experience, tangible ways God shows up. I just would like to offer this morning four guidelines. On how to think about evidence, especially when interacting with people from a different faith perspective. The first guideline I would offer is just a humble reminder to self, to all of us, that we don't have all the evidence. None of us in any faith tradition has all the evidence. All of us have to at some point make a step or as is described, a leap of faith. We hope there's enough evidence that the leap isn't like a long jump. But everyone, everywhere, must make a step of faith. We don't have all the evidence. And by the way, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is despair. Doubt and faith coexist. It's despair that's troubling second guideline I would offer is understanding how different our culture is today than the culture we grew up in, the culture my parents and my grandparents grew up in. The questions of today's culture are so very different. The ideas of today's culture that today it's very accepted. Everyone's perspective is valid and there can be truth found in anyone's perspective. That the complexity we live with, even here in America, the global multicultural world that now lives right next door, it, it used to be when I grew up, I, could never, I never even saw a person of a, another faith tradition besides my own. At least Christianity. What a very different world we live in. I believe we have underestimated the context of America in the 21st century, and this is why we continue to go overseas to baptize people. Because we have not figured out how the gospel makes sense to the people who live in America in the 21st century, the complex place we now are. This is not my mother's world, my grandfather's world. It's a very different place. Inherent in all of this is a new kind of atheism the last five or ten years. And Christians, Adventist Christians, we ought to be aware of that. Some, some people critiqued me a couple of months ago, gave me a hard time because I have on my book writing atheist writings. And someone said, well, why would you want to read that? Well, I would want to read that because I'd like to know what an atheist thinks, how an atheist approaches the topic of faith. I'd like to read that because I'd like to know where the pitfalls are. I'd like to know where they think we're blindsided. If you like to read those kinds of things, a very persuasive read comes from Anthony Flew, 20th century, one of the most predominant um, and influential philosophers of the 20th century, educated at Oxford, sat in conversation groups with C.S. Lewis, the son of a minister, a Methodist minister, yet grew up to become one of the world's most influential philosophers and atheists, and the title of his book is from 2004, is called There Is a God. How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. What's fascinating in that read is to see where his perspective was and what evidence it took to persuade him. He remembers growing up in the church and he says, Never did I feel my mind enchanted or my heart strangely warmed in Christian worship. Never did I understand the point of worship. I never desired to commune with God. So when he moved out of his house and went to be trained at Oxford, he developed his own opinion. We ought to understand our culture and the variety of perspectives that are so very different. My third guideline for this morning, we ought to understand how unique we really are raised inside of faith. How the lenses we wear color everything we see because you and I have been raised with faith. Because your parents and your grandparents taught you to believe what you believe, how it changes everything. When we look at evidence, that matters. Two stories that happened this week. Jean Zachary is one of them, and she she gives me permission to share this story she told last week at the women's retreat across town. Jean was reflecting on the time when her husband first died and, and how difficult it was to be alone in the house, to do all the chores that her husband used to do, and how she cried out to God and, and said to God, you, you know, I have no husband and you have promised you will be my husband and there came a day when she needs to change a light bulb in the ceiling and it's very high up and if I remember correct, she, she had to get on a chair or a stool to reach up and change this light bulb and she couldn't get it in one time, two times and she's distraught and crying out to God and then she, the phone rings and Pastor Derek Morris and one of the elders from the church are on their way over to pray with her. And she thought, hallelujah, they can at least put in a light bulb while they're here. I might be embellishing a little bit, wherever you are, Jean. But I had a moment this morning, friends. When we go to pray with someone, maybe all they need is a light bulb put in their ceiling. So the pastor and the elder are on their way over to their house, but something happens on the way. They get a phone call, and there's an emergency, and they never show up at Jean's house. They have to take a rain check. And here she is with her stupid light bulb and that fixture all the way up at the top, and she cries out to God, if, if you're going to be my husband, help me now. And she climbs up on that chair and puts that light bulb straight up in, and it's solid. And she says, thank you, God. I needed a husband. We are at the Chamber of Commerce meeting on Thursday night. My good friend Isaac Kim takes me to the Chamber of Commerce meeting, and he leaves me there, cause he, to be honest, he had to come back to the church to practice for our big Easter weekend. It was legitimate. We had no idea what we were getting into. We're just trying to be neighborly and meet meet the people in the community. And they gave out an award for the best volunteer, an award for the best police officer, an award for the best fireman, an award. Blah, blah, blah. Three hours later, <laughs> but we were neighborly at our table. There is a very charming man. I hope one day he'll come to our church. When he heard Isaac and I were from the Adventist church, he first apologized because he had liquor on the table. (laughs) Hope this doesn't bother you. No problem. No, no problem. Then he begins to say, oh, you're Adventist. I know you folks. You have that hospital down there. Yeah, you're good people. Yeah, I liked your hospital. He began to tell us the story of how sick he was once, called for an ambulance, and ended up at Loma Linda. Very sick. The man was very sick. He had to have 16 units of blood when he was admitted. He said, they solved my problem. I like those doctors and those girls. They were good. That's the nurses. (laughs) Those were good girls. I like that place. I like that place. He can tell the whole story and never once mention God's hand in his crisis or his healing. Because he's not raised from the faith perspective, from inside, like we are. How very different, we how we are trained when something happens in our world to look up and give God the credit, or to name that as God's actions, and how for people raised outside of the faith, that would never enter their mind most often. It helps us to remember how unique our perspective is when we're raised inside the faith. My fourth and last guideline, if I only had one word of counsel, and I really only do this morning, when approaching people, approaching people from a different faith perspective, my only word of counsel is that we would listen rather than talk or correct or teach. That my mouth could take a vacation and my ear be attuned. How long we listened at the table the other night, Isaac, but I know an awful lot more about Jack's life and why he does what he does and why he might believe what he believes. We can never go wrong by listening, Christian friends. By listening to people's stories and the journeys when how, how life has taken them, we can never go wrong by understanding people better. closing my mouth, attuning my ear. It's a good principle for interacting with people from other faith traditions. You know, in the gospel story today, the crowd declares at the end, surely a prophet has come into the world because, look, we had food. It is hard to judge how successful that event was if you go to the end of the gospel of John, how many of the people that day in the crowd ended up with the disciples after Jesus had, was come and gone. It's difficult to measure the success of that day. What we can see is that human needs were met. And for me, the most powerful line in the gospel story this morning is Jesus' line to the disciples, what will we do? How shall we find bread for them? It, how Jesus implicates all of us into the crisis For me, that's the most powerful line in the story because still it proves to me that the best evidence for a God and the gospel in the world are other people who have been changed by that God and that gospel. What can we do, Jesus says? He says to people who hardly have enough bread of their own to eat, to people who have never performed a miracle... What can we do about this? He says to people with various skill sets and talents, how are we going to show the evidence of a good God in the world? For me, changed people are always the strongest evidence to change people. Changed people, people who do peculiar things that don't make any sense like show up at community services and pack clothes, like, like young adults and young families who are willing to spend $1,500 over a spring break to go to Honduras. They're going to spend their own money and spend their own vacation. Why do people behave that way? That is the evidence for the gospel right there. Changed people. That is a truth that will never expire. It's fascinating, that little Snuggie. When the advertisers evaluate that, what they said was, here are people watching a commercial. They're having the problem that that product can solve. Why was this more successful than 20 or 25 years ago? Because in the year 2008, the people in America, this morning, the people in America need comfort. And the advertisers decided they're looking at a product that looks comforting. So they picked up the phone and bought it. Forty million people persuaded to buy comfort. Surely there is hope for the gospel today. So to that one faithful God be honor and glory and power and blessing. Persuade us, God, of your ability to change this world. In the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you'll just remain seated, some of you have heard a rumor this morning, haven't you? So, just this week, a call came from the La Sierra University Church. Just this week, on Thursday, we answered. And we are going to be moving, some of you know that we came to you four years ago from that church. We're going to be moving back and I will be the senior pastor uh, starting the 1st of March. We don't come to this decision easily. In fact, when I told Kirby on Thursday that I'd called the conference office and it was now official, he said to me, congratulations and condolences. And that's how we feel. We, we feel incredibly loved and cheered, incredibly accepted in this place. But I just have to tell you why the reason for the move. We feel extremely committed to doing our part in Adventist Christianity, a denomination still struggling, wrestling women in leadership. When one of our university churches decided they would do this, this will be the first time any of them will allow a woman to lead on a college campus. That's one of the reasons we're going. You have no small part in that. We never talk about it around here. I remember one of the first stories Isaac got when I joined the staff. One of the elderly couples said to Isaac, do you guys like her? Because if you like her, then maybe we'll be okay with her. <laughs> Do you remember that? That's how it goes. Um, this is no small part that you have put me to work for four years. We never talk about it. Week comes and week goes, and um, I don't show up at staff meeting and they say, oh, here she is again, a woman in our midst. I come to visit you in the hospital, and you complain that a woman came to pray with you. We just, it just goes on and goes on and goes on. It's no small accomplishment that a church, a rural church out here in the country, a family church of 1,200, could make this work. And it's one of the reasons why this transition can also work. So you are to be applauded. You are in this move with us. We, are all, we also find it very tempting to be part of college life, campus life, the ideas that are inherent that swirl around a campus, the opportunity to mentor and train pastors, the next generation of pastors who might need to know that sometimes it's just a light bulb, not a prayer. That just occurred to me this morning. So it, these are the reasons we're choosing to go. We have about a month with you. We will assign a search committee at our next church board meeting a week from next I feel very committed and very covetous over who the next person will be to come and work with my friends. And we are already talking about that, how to find the pastor to join this team and this church with its current mission in this place with the vision that's already been cast. We are very committed, and the conference is very committed to that. That search committee will be called to to work in about 10 days and they'll begin doing uh, with soliciting your prayers and your information and your assistance. I have every confidence in this team standing behind me that in the interim, they will do you well. You don't need to be worried. And that's about all I can say. Um, We love you. We'll be here about four more weeks, and it would be good if you'd come and take me now.